everybody. Welcome back. I am Jeff Cross, your host of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR. Uh, we're going to jump right into it because we have a, a very special guest today, a friend of mine and a colleague, a senior account executive at United Healthcare, Anthony Iguano. Anthony, thanks so much for being here. We're, we're excited to have you. Thank you, Jeff. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. As you know, I am a huge fan of Friends with Employee Benefits. And I'm sure you know, I have many friends with employee benefits, with you being one of them. Oh, well, don't I feel special. <laughs> well, I, did, I didn't know you were that big a fan. Like, what, what, what do you like about the show? I love the little riff that kind of starts off the show before you get things going. Oh, it really? really? sets the energy nice. Did you know that's my son? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Colin Cross Music. Colin Linnell, yeah. Well, I think we should all Google him and look him up. Yeah, some great absolutely. Stuff. Check him out. Check him out. Totally. Uh, little, little trivia, little tidbit there. So, uh, you know what, Anthony, let's jump right into a lot to talk about. Here's the issue. Virtually every one of our clients uh, wants to offer competitive health insurance programs, but without breaking the bank. And, that, and that's the challenge. And so, and you and I know, Anthony, that the cost of health insurance is always driven by the underlying cost of healthcare. So people can complain about administrative expense and, and executive salaries and whatever the, but, but the bottom line is healthcare costs drive healthcare premiums, right? So at the end of the day, what, what we're looking for for our clients is for vendors or partners or carriers um, uh, to, to tackle this underlying uh, cost of healthcare issue that we have in this, in this country. So two part question. All right. And then I'll let you go. You'll, you'll let you let you roll with it. Um, so, because you know, the cost of healthcare has two main components to it. So, this is why it's a two-part question. Number one, unit cost, right? And number two, utilization. So, this combination of unit cost and utilization drives drives um, healthcare spend. So, how is United Health Healthcare tackling? First, let's start with unit cost. Mm -hmm. Well, we look at unit cost as a component of total cost, right? So, you have the whole total cost of care that makes up the whole the whole healthcare delivery system. And you have many different pieces of it. You have, the, you have the payer side, which is the provider side. You have the actual plans themselves. You have, you have the actual delivery, the actual uh, utilization of the benefit itself as part of it. So I think, first off, you have to look at, you know, kind of what's going on here in the state, right? Healthcare is local. We look at the move to value and the things that are going on. And the whole idea about the move to value is the focus on the actual total, the whole total cost of care in providing value-based incentives to folks and value-based incentive design. So how do you do all that? So before you can even get to the plan side of it, there's the payer side of it. And I think it's an exciting time in the market because not only do you have folks like yourself on the consulting side and on the payer side wanting to pay for um, performance, you have a lot of our providers are moving towards the value-based, the whole concept of value-based contracting. And that's here to stay. Value-based contracting is the whole notion of pay for performance. So when you think about um, redos, uh, complication rates, fatality rates, all the things that make up the cost of care, it's a way of incentivizing a provider or a stakeholder for actual performance in the plans. And I think what you can see in the payer side, and you, you can hear it throughout the state with the move to value, we have a lot of the payer partners, whether it be facilities, whether it be provider groups, there is an open to that whole concept. So our position is not every provider right now is on a value-based contract. However, 
it's the tolerance of that provider group. Some on the spectrum of care, you know, some of them are, are fee-for-service, some of them are value-based with upside, downside. It really depends on what the tolerance of that organization. But you can see that when we talk about plan design later, we talk about accountable care organizations, when we talk about high-value providers, you're going to see there are components of value-based contracting throughout all that. So it really is a, a component of we all have skin in the game in this process. Yeah. So, I mean, let's just go right to that because uh, to this idea of accountable care organizations and, and, and value-based payments to providers. So that's, I think what you're saying is the, the heart of how you're tackling the unit cost issue, just the underlying cost of care is by working with providers in a very different way such that they're no longer going to get paid just to do something, right? Rather, they're going to get paid to do it well. Right. to deliver the right outcome. We want to true we want to achieve the triple aim, which is we want to get people to the best outcome. Mm -hmm. We want the highest quality and we want to keep costs down. Right. And there's no doubt that everyone in the process wants to do that as well. Yeah. You know, and it's a matter of how do we get there? And you need all the matrix partners to work together to achieve that. Are you guys are you guys focused on um the, at the provider, the doctor, the physician level, or, or when you think about sort of pay for value and contracting in this more meaningful pay for performance way um, of larger healthcare systems, including facilities. So, so where are you putting your stake in the ground, if, if anywhere? It, it, can it can depend on the structure of, of what we're discussing. If it's a center of excellence, right? So if, if, you, if it's for a certain, can, uh, certain certain area, say it's transplant, there could be- Certain episode yeah, of care. Yeah, it really depends on the, the, the mechanism we're asking about. If it's a provider group, yes, you're looking at, you know, where are they steering care? If it's a, a provider group tied to a facility, you can look at the overall accountable care piece of it, like a St. Francis, which we'll talk about a little bit. Um, it really depends on, you know, what we're, what we're evaluating. But the, the, the end game is we want to have pay for performance, right? So. We want to compensate the, based upon the actual result um, in, in these best-in-class models. And yeah. that's where value-based incentive design is at the heart of what we're trying to do locally. Value-based incentive design is uh, very aligned with the whole notion of a move to value, which is providing employers with low-cost alternatives that yield the highest outcome. So um, you know, from our perspective, when we look at total cost of care, a lot of that's going to be on the plan sponsor themselves to opt into a plan that has these type of features because not just the providers, not just the insurer, we all have skin in this game. So, um, you know, I think that that has been at least locally and where, you know, my area of concentration has been, it's really been around as we have these mechanisms set up. Now let's bring them to the market. Right. So to, to your point, you know, one of the things we're doing locally, it's a little bit different is we think with the whole notion of value-based incentive design, if you can't go into an open enrollment meeting with employers, you know, one of the things you guys talk about is, is your customers and the things that you bring to them. If you can't stand at an open enrollment meeting and explain one of these mechanisms, they're useless. If it's too complicated, people aren't going to do it. You got it. Yeah. So when we talk about these mechanisms of value-based care that create the value-based incentive design, what we've done locally, and when we talk about Connecticut, I'm talking about an employer that's fully insured or self-insured. This isn't one of these mechanisms that it's only for certain size groups or, you know, I think you know I sit on the Connecticut Business Group on Health Board 
And when we go to these meetings, you know, a lot of hands go up and they say, well, these are great ideas, but you know, I'm not a self-insured client. I'm not 2000. How do we bring it down market? Yeah. We have that and we're excited about that. And the idea behind our value-based incentive design is because like I said, if you can't explain enrollment, it doesn't work. You think about the six different components of like a medical plan and we'll keep pharmacy out of it for a second. You think about primary care spend, you think about specialist spend, urgent care spend, emergency room, inpatient and outpatient. When we designed our value-based incentive design for Connecticut specifically, and, and these are solutions you can use for situs groups in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New York, so we have those in the bordering states. But really for purposes of Connecticut, the idea was in this value-based incentive design to hit our triple aim at the product level, we were not gonna touch facility spend. So our value-based incentive design, in no scenario are we gonna tier an inpatient or outpatient setting within the state of Connecticut. So that's where I was going with that question, Absolutely. right? So, so you're sure. focused more on the attending physician. The I person who I, sets the care path. Right, right, exactly. Right. Uh, right, okay. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but right. The person who's really going to be charged with or or, or, or making those decisions is to, is to, because they'll steer somebody, mm -hmm. theoretically, right, their patient to the, the appropriate setting. It, it, so if you, if you narrow down to those providers, the physicians, not the facilities, again, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, the theory is that they will naturally bring their patient to the place or guide their, their patient to the place that is the appropriate site of care. You got it. So 80% of the whole healthcare episode is set by the person who sets the care path. So yeah. when you think about the entire episode, that care it's all about the person setting that care path. Right. So what we decided to do with our value-based incentive design is we've created what we call a tier one. And what a tier one is, is it's based upon a program we've had since 2009, a national program that we have here locally as well called premium designation. And what premium designation is, is it's tiering of providers based on two, two stars or two hearts. And the, the hearts or the stars or how, however you wanna look at, it, look at them on our websites and tools are based upon quality first, cost efficiency second metrics. You can't be premium designated for one heart without having quality. You have to have quality. And what we've seen with these providers that achieve two hearts versus none is we get an 18% lower cost per episode. We want these providers independently to be able to make their referrals and their referring patterns and not be tied to a certain admitting privilege they can admit where they want. We trust that these providers that are tier one will make the right admission yeah. on the care path. Right. So when we designed this whole value-based piece, we said, okay, well, we're only going to introduce for, let's talk about a consumer-driven plan. So what would that look like in this model? We would say, okay, well, if the plan's consumer-driven, we'll say it's an 80% coinsurance consumer plan, which is probably, of all your customers, probably the most common plan. This program, and, so, and just to clarify, for yeah. when you say consumer driven, it's a high deductible health plan. High deductible health plan. And what, what, what we'd say is this, we'd say, whether you do this on a full replacement with a conventional plan, or, or excuse me, on an offering with a conventional plan or full replacement, doesn't matter to us. You can use this in a defined contribution model. What we're saying is when you put out this program and you only introduce a concept of 20% steerage from say 80 to 60 on tier two, we're going to see very large savings simply by steering folks in an attribution model, PCP and specialist, primary care and specialist, uh, to, into tier one. And our tier one composition, 
are these premium designated providers. What does that look like? When you look nationally, 41% of our primary care providers are premium tier one. 34% of our specialists are, are premium tier one. Here in Hartford County, 40% of all of our providers are tier one. 45% of our providers in Fairfield County are tier one. So what we do with this value-based design is we take that tier one premium designation and any high value accountable care organizations like a St. Francis that we have arrangements with, we put them together into this sub network and we, we bring it to the market. So right. what we say to the member at the enrollment level is we are asking you to do a couple things in attribution. We are not going to tier your hospital if you spend. We're gonna say, okay, if you're an 80% plan, doesn't matter what hospital you go to. 80% co-insurance, all tier one. But we're saying in that primary care and specialist spend, when you pick that provider, because you can do this open access or gated, we want you to knowingly understand at point of enrollment, that's where the attribution comes in. The member's gonna have to make a decision on primary care provider. If it's open access, the, the, the idea of picking the primary is all, almost ceremonial, but the idea behind it is that they will be educated almost like a center of excellence mandatory education they're going to have to sit through why do we have these steering what what are the results yeah. and you know look no further than leapfrog data right and, and without saying the hospital names there's some surprising names that do some great things in leapfrog and they're not tied to huge health systems oh and then there's surprising ones that don't do well in leapfrog there you go would automatically assume do do well so, so we want to trust that our tier one providers are doing the right things and it's statistically based on algorithms it's a national criteria. It's not, and local when it comes down to the state level. It's not something that's set by United Healthcare. We take specialists. If it's oncology, the Association of Oncologists gives us criteria. We run our membership through the algorithm, and that's where we get our tier one. And if we don't actually credential a, tier, a, a specialty tier, all those providers go in tier one. So it's a very, a very casual tiering we're asking of the members we're saying listen in our value-based incentive design if you make that attribution decision into tier one you'll get the richer co-insurance level we're not touching your emergency room spend we're not touching your urgent care spend we're not touching your inpatient spend not touching your outpatient spend the only thing we're asking the employer to do is allow us to introduce the concept of why it's important to pick a primary care and what tier one means and we're going to then say if you're a plan sponsor willing to do this we remove out of network benefits. It's done on a national exclu exclusive provider network, which is an EPO by, by our in industry jargon. But the, when you do those things in an open access basis, when you look at a like consumer plan and you introduce the idea of steering at a 20% level and you, you take out the out of network benefit, simply having PCP and specialist attribution, we're seeing almost 10% premium savings on actuarial values on the plants. And you've seen them in our quotes and some of our customers. So, so, right. So where there's That's premium, in an open access. So there's there's premium and, and then, so I'm going to come back to gatekeeper because you introduced that. There's a much bigger Sorry, value when you use that. Yeah. Let's, let's come back to that. A couple of things I want to unpack a little bit more. Sure. So if the premiums go down 10%, then the underlying cost of care is going down somehow. But, but you said it's better quality. And so how do you get better quality? at a lower cost to so a lot of people and a lot of industries and products out there that's counterintuitive mm -hmm. you've got that you know we get what we pay for mentality right. and wait if it's less expensive it must not be as good yeah. it, it comes down to that cost per episode so when we take a look at those tier one providers 
we've seen what they can do. When you look at orthopedics or group redos, you know, they have 41% less complication rates when they're premium. So by seeing that and knowing that the cost is 18% lower per episode, mm -hmm. you can actually offer an actual richer benefit with a lesser, you know, uh, a, with a smaller panel and you, you, you get that savings. So, so, the, so, the high quality, quality. so the, so the high quality really means, correct me if I'm wrong, is, um, reduction, significant reduction of waste, uh, care, you, you care that really never should have to happen. Absolutely. Right? Readmissions, post-surgical infections, et cetera. Right. Uh, it's, it's, is that, is that what it is? There's so much waste in the healthcare system. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the, the good works of uh, Connecticut choosing wisely and some of the things they're doing and how they're educating plant sponsors about things that you should put in your plan, we're going to talk about, I know we, in the pre-talk, we talked a little about utilization management. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. But, um, you know, from, from their good works of things that you need to look for in your plan, there is a lot of medical waste in the system. Um, and, you know, it's not that a provider isn't a good provider per se. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's quantitatively based. And it's, it's, a, it's a structure where we work together. If someone wants to be premium designated, we'll work with them on how to achieve that. Um, and what I really, this is just my personal opinion, but what I really like about the way we, we do these tier these tierings for tier one for premium designation is just because you're in a medical practice management and the piece the primary care provider in the office next to me is premium designated, it doesn't mean I am too. So we are credentialing each one of these individually, individually yep. at the tax ID level. And that's important mm -hmm. because there has to be integrity in the tiers, right? There has to be integrity in the bro program for these values to be sustainable. You can assume that every every provider in a really big practice is 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 a is a great is, is delivering great outcomes every time. It's impossible. Right. Any organization we're in, I mean we all have different roles. Yeah. You know, we watched the Super Bowl last night, right? Not everybody is an A plus player. Yep. Um and that's just the reality of it. So um you know and and that's where the 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 medical practice managers and the facilities that have jumped on value based contracting, um, you know, they're putting their they're, they're putting their skin in the game, and so are we, right? So, you know, all of these plans that we put out that are in the hundred plus market, that we hundred plus meaning hundred plus eligibles, yep. um, employees, yep. so to speak, we're we're doing these in an environment of a one way participating contract, so we have skin in the game and the performance. If a if a if a group performs well, there's skin in the game on us. To, to to share in those returns. A group of, pra of medical practice. Well, I, I'm talking about at the, the plan level. Oh, okay. Now there could be in that provider contract, depending on on what the arrangement is with that provider group. But I'm saying at the plan level, with these value-based designs, the employers will actually participate in the shared returns. And that's that's a one way back to them. There's no downside to them, downsides to us. So the way we've brought these out to the market, we're saying, okay, so if, if you're not gonna go self-funded, which you certainly can do with us, we're saying if you do it in a fully insured environment, there's still an opportunity for return. To get some premium exactly. back if the cost of care ends up being less than what you even expected. Exactly. So we may set a target loss ratio for a group. And loss, loss ratio is, I'm, I'm, yep. I, know, I know what you're talking about, when I, but when I ask for clarification, not, not, not everybody. I, I'm shocked that everybody that listens doesn't <laughs> understand that. I would think everybody knows what's the loss a loss ratio. So, Anthony? you know, everybody pays premium. So when you take your premiums versus your claims, yeah. you come up with a, you divide your claims into your premiums and you come up with a uh, percentage. And based on that percentage, say we set 85% of premium is claims 
And if you run at a certain percentage, let's say for all intents and purposes, 75 on an 85, we return 50% of that differential. Yes. Um, and then 10% of premium, that's, you know, 5% we return back and it's an unlimited return. Yeah. And that's the idea behind this. So if someone was to come to us on the macro level, we have value-based incentives yeah. on the plan, but we also have them for the member. So all the employers that offer this in, in this, once again, it's 100 plus space, we have a very similar product in the two to 99 market, which doesn't have all the same value-based incentives. But with that, with this, this space we're speaking of, we actually are giving a wearable to everyone who chooses one of these plans that's in a consumer driven or deductible based environment. We're giving a wearable and we are funding incentives into an account, which in an HSA environment, which is a health savings environment, um, that's real dollars. We're giving back value based incentives for a wearable we provide, we fund incentives we fund to actually utilize these. So we're saying, because when you say the, wearable, like a Fitbit sort like, of device, exactly. right? Whether it be a, yeah. we provide what's called a Shrive, which yeah. is a version of the Fitbit, yeah. but you can bring your own Apple Watch or a Garmin, or right. yeah, there's a, there's a plethora of devices you can use. But the idea behind it is, if you choose to one of these plans, so we say to a plan sponsor, you can you can offer these on a like a, we said a defined contribution. So you set your contribution off a lower plan. Keep all the plans you have now. Try us out on a value based incentive design. All those value-based incentives, whether it be the wearable, whether it be the one-way participating contract, they're going to be there. One step further, if it's a consumer plan, which is a health savings account-based plan, we're actually in the deductible and co-insurance phase of the plans, giving back what's called point-of-sale discounts on the pharmacy spend, which is actually rebates. So rebates are actually going directly back let's, to the member. Let, let's, maybe we come back to that. We can come back but, to that. But the idea is- I want, I want to back up. Again. Again. I want Absolutely. Because we're into product now, and I want to kind of come back to unit costs. Absolutely. And a couple of things you said. So to summarize, what what you're saying is in order to control unit costs, the underlying cost of care, you have to steer people to providers who are taking responsibility for delivering better outcomes. Absolutely. Okay. Then you mentioned a term called gatekeeper, which I think a lot of people might have thought, hmm gatekeeper plans where you have to have, we have to go see a primary care physician and get a referral to see a specialist, right? Is a gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. A lot of people thought those plans are gone. Mm-hmm. You're saying in United Healthcare's mind, no, you're, 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 are you bringing back gatekeeper? Like we've uh, had them. I mean, so, you know, I, I, I get to, I'm lucky to get to distribute in the new England region. And, you know, we've, we've had, we've had gatekeeper products over the last I don't know, five to 10 years back on the shelves. And um, many plant sponsors do opt into them. Now that hasn't really caught on in the Connecticut marketplace, but with um, the whole move to value, we think if a plan sponsor's tolerance is that their employees would be willing to go into an attribution model where they actually are seeking care at the primary. First from the primary. Right, and, and letting that primary handle the whole course of care, there is additional savings to achieve. Mm -hmm. Now, just personally, again, speaking, a best practice with that is if a plan sponsor wasn't sure on what they want to do, you can also offer them side by side and open access and a a gatekeeper model and allow the member to make the decision. Let the member make the decision. I am ready for this model. And for the plan sponsor or, or employer that puts up that objection, if you will, to 
you know, their, their financial board or whoever they have to answer to, they can then say, well, you know what? The member in almost a, almost like a business to consumer relationship is going to make that decision. I'm ready for this. Mm -hmm. So of course we all want to sit here and say, okay, well, you know, we know the, 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 the lowest cost and best outcome probably would be in a tier one model where we get someone attributed into the primary model. They might not ideologically be ready for that. And if, and if, if they are great, if they're not, then you have an alternative. Yeah. So, you know, just from best practices, when you, when you, when you don't give folks options, generally you're going to see, you know, a, a lower satisfaction when you give people options, more times than not, they're going to make the right decision. I'll give you an example of that. Center of Excellence. When we do a self-funded customer, and we don't even do a mandatory benefit, we do mandatory education. So you have to actually enroll in the education to actually utilize the benefit. We have over 80% of people that go into education will pick a COA, Center of Excellence, because they did the education of it. So a lot of that comes down to giving, trusting your employee that they will make the right decision. And, you know, I think when you can empower them with data, informatics, digital tools that we have, and even provider-based tools that they're going to have available to them as a result of these models, there's more confidence in the system to do that. And I know we're going to talk about advocacy a little it bit, It has too. to be easy. It has to be simple. It has to be easy. It has to be easy. Yeah. And that's where the whole notion of primary and specialty and not literally tying up a whole benefit summary of items and saying to an employee, right. You know, so, and if you're, if you're tiering every, every conceivable procedure that someone to understand. might have, then right. It's, it's a little overwhelming and confusing. Um, uh, centers of excellence. Let's mm -hmm. talk about that. So, right. you know, you've got, um, we really kind of, when you talk about that high performing network, that's almost like an accountable care organization sort of strategy is that, Am I right about that? Or I guess not? it depends on your definition yeah, of account yeah. care, but to but, us, but then, yeah. But then when you kind of drill, if you go one layer deeper now, I think you start talking about centers of excellence. So what, what, what explain to the layperson what you're talking about? There. Center of excellence to us is someone that we have an arrangement with that really is the best of the best at what they do. And they do achieve quality and they do achieve cost efficiency. Uh, when you look at, results, whether it be redos, admissions, warranties on services, you'll see a lot of these components in these, in these center of excellence arrangements. So you do have that provider grouping uh, buy-in as well as the plan piece of it. So what we do with something like spine and joint, there's a couple ways you can use a center of excellence. Um, you can use a center of excellence as a tool create a mandatory environment where you're steering your employees to someone we feel has the highest quality based upon the data we have, or you can create education around it where simply you tie our advocacy model to it and we literally educate people before you can actually utilize the benefit. So you can't actually use it until, until you um, go or through spoken, that. Spoken with a, with a with right. navigator or, or care coordinator or something. Right. So for spine and joint, for instance, our steerage model says in Connecticut, St. Francis, Connecticut JRI, Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute. Yeah. You know, they're they're what we see to be right now the statistically best at what they do. Yeah. Same thing in Massachusetts with Leahy Clinic, and 
you know, that's right now where those those types of arrangements bring people to. Um, now, do do is that something every plan sponsor should do or need to do? No, I mean it's 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 a it's your tolerance to the strategy. When we take a look at our actuarial model for that specific group and where the folks are, we're going to be able to model out costs. But that is another way, depending on where your steerage is now or could be, where you could actually achieve some. Savings. So are you are you there now or are you heading there? That you've got, so you've got product now built around steering to your your um, what do you call it? designation? Uh, the, the, your high performing doctors, right. right? What do you call it again? Uh, premium designation. Premium designation. Yes. Yeah. So, so do you have product now that is actually steering through the benefit design, even a layer deeper to a center of excellence? We we not only do have now, we've had it. So, um, you know, I would say. As far as bef even before the move to value, mm -hmm. provider tiering, premium designation tiering, my team and I, we've been, we've been doing this in the market since 2010. Mm -hmm. So um, the first premium designation tiered benefit we put on was, was 2011. And we probably had about 30 of them that we brought on the books over the last decade. Yeah. Um, and literally what happened with the Nexus ACO regional version it's just the next step of premium designation tiering because it's a little bit different. Now we have the attribution model where you pick the PCP, primary care provider, the EPO element of the added network uh, being removed. That's kind of the next phase of it. But as far as centers of excellence go, that's something that's really been in our DNA and we've always been able to utilize. I mean, even if you grab a fully insured benefit summary, you'll see you know, transplants, gene therapy, we do use mandatory approaches. And that goes with utilization management, right? So one of the things that you and, and you're and you're you, and so it's the expansion of the center of excellence concept though i mean i think we're still as an industry in the early phases of that i mean to your point there's a handful yeah. of a handful of episodes of care that you can steer to centers of excellence today um it is 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 the expansion of that to other episodes of care beyond joint and spine and transplants and so forth um, absolutely part There's, of the strategy right now you, you know a plan sponsor could come to us and they could do bariatric they could do heart disease mm -hmm. cancer neonatal infertility you with, with with the exception of a few you name the specialty yeah we can build something and that that's where it comes back to the tolerance and you know i would say this to anybody that listens to us talking today you really don't know what's out there until you ask for it yeah. so I think the thought process is that there's so few options, but they're 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 there. It's just a matter of engagement, right? And it's 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 asking for what you're trying to build. Um, you know, that's one of the fun parts about what I get to do, and when we, you and I are working together, we get to do. We can model these things out for folks. We can bring innovative ideas. The same old, same old is changing, and that payer reform, value-based contracting is here to stay. Yeah. So everything is changing, and that's the whole concept. Of to value and I think it's how are we going to all as individuals and stakeholders answer the bell and the more options plan sponsors and employers have I think the better um, and it could be risk sharing it can be funding mechanisms it can be plan design it can be gatekeep it could be any model really that they have in mind because filings are very liberal you know and it's opened up the market to do some really cool things for everybody. Um, and that's been, it's been fun. You know, it's been fun in the market right now. So I think, you know, it's really 
all, all these things sound good, but it's up to the plan sponsor to say, okay, I'm not going to do the same thing and create a spreadsheet of rates and like plans. Right? So what, what I would say to anybody that comes across your eye is you can do all that, but there's, you have no, there's no reason why not to offer at the business to consumer level, one of these options and yeah. let, let the member make that decision yeah. because more times than not, they're going to pick that. Yeah. And when you talk about the gating that we talked about before, now you're looking at instead of a 10% value, a 14% value. So if someone doesn't touch the contributions, yeah. if I'm already using that tier one provider and I'm willing to gate, that's a good deal, right? I mean, who wouldn't take that? I mean, so, so getting it out there and getting people educated is a big part of what you and I do. Yeah. Um, so, and just to kind of close this out, the way I kind of view this is it's like the, where we've been for the last 20 years or whatever is you've got this broad network of providers and they're all getting paid for volume, paid to do something regardless of what the outcome is. And now we've got these tiered networks, right? smaller networks within the larger network, the smaller network providers who are engaging with the payers in a different way to get paid for performance and outcomes, right. deliver a, a, a higher quality experience and outcome for it. So next layer in, in my mind, would be centers of excellence. And in the, in the bullseye, as I envision that is, now you're doing episodic bundle payments to centers of excellence for certain episodes of care. Right, that's kind of the, the the way I see it, and 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 that sounds like your your the way that you're attacking this underlying uh, underlying unit cost. So let's talk about utilization. Then. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of time on on unit cost. Absolutely. So what what are you doing on utilization management? You know, one thing we've been doing for a long time on our policies is medical necessity, right? So, you know, the 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 big change I've seen from you know when I started at United Healthcare until now is you know, is, is the actual, some people say like a third, you know, they think of a care, an insurance carrier as a third party administrator. And there has to be some kind of noise factor on the plan because if, if you're not managing the plan and every claim is going through, there's no utilization management plan. And when you look at a fully insured rate or a self-funded fee, you know, the employers that are our valued customers, they pay us for case, disease, condition, and utilization management. So in order to do our job in utilization management, we really do have to manage the claimants. And you know, medical and pharmacy are different components, but med necessity is a big way to do that. So that would mean you know, we just don't let people go get bariatric surgery because they want to. You know, there has to be medical criteria on why, to, why they're getting that um, and why the plan should pay for that. And one of the things that is, again, in my opinion, United is when we look at prior authorization, which is part of medical necessity, Optum, which is in-house, does all that for us. So we're able to navigate very quickly because all of our own um, management of the policy is within the house. So I would say creating med necessity, having prior authorizations on the plan, having mandatory centers of excellence where it makes sense, like a transplant benefit, it's really helped us manage the plans well. Um, you know, and of course, any employer can come to us and say, you know, I'm for this specific reason, I need to change the policy, but there's a premium for that. So we get back to that tolerance, right? What is my tolerance for the plan? But if somebody came up to us and said, 
okay, build us a plan. We're going to suggest that you have a medical necessity certificate, right? Add a network. Here's another big piece of it. Utilization management, add a network reimbursement. That is a big piece of the overall spend. You know, we suggest that you, you reimburse up a percentage of Medicare. So that way you're at a network spend isn't through the roof because it's very hard to manage the whole course of care where the prior authorization falls on the member when you go out of network. Now we're in a state where there's very little out of network utilization, but that item can become a very big ticket piece. Yeah. So by lowering back the, the lever on out of network reimbursement, you can really manage your plan better. But like I said, a lot of this comes down to what's the employer tolerance. Now, Here's a question. Sure. Uh, if someone's seeing a, a, a high-performing provider, so someone in that tier one, right, premium designated provider, isn't that in and of itself a form of utilization management? Doesn't that now kind of, because let's be honest, like, you know, people don't want the insurance company making these kinds of clinical decisions, right? And so, like, isn't steering them to providers who are who are accepting responsibility for managing cost and managing care holistically don't they become the utilization managers if you will absolutely i mean that's that's consumerism and modernization at its best right yeah. so the member is creating utilization management just by our plan design with the, with the provider right. right but what the reason i wouldn't say it's hard steerage is because the member is making that decision mm. within the model. But yes, our mechanisms support mm. that type of approach. And that, like I said, since 2009, when you look up a provider, this is through our advocacy piece. When you look up a provider, premium designated providers always come up first. You actually have to change the search criteria to zip code or whatever other criteria you're utilizing. We immediately, when you run the search, we'll do premium designated providers first based on mileage person proximity. So you'll see all your two stars, one yep. stars, yep. or two hearts, one hearts, and then zero. Right. Um, same thing with the customer service model. Now, I don't know how, how we're gonna get, the, how, how much time we have to get. Well, I, I, let, let's go to that right now, because I wanted, you, you said the word big advocacy. Piece big piece of it. Right. It's what do you, big what do you mean by talk about that? Ad, advocacy is probably one of the most hot button items in the industry right yep. now, and that's the piece of, what are we doing to help navigate the healthcare delivery model. And I think, you know, to your point, you're sitting here and you're, you know, you're coaching me on not using jargon and whatnot. The healthcare delivery model is very difficult to understand. It really is, no matter whether you're in our industry or you're not. And there is, there, there is a need for advocacy as far as benefit design, uh, looking up providers, looking up drugs. We have to help with that, regardless of, of what the mechanism is. And when I talk about premium designation advocacy, we view every touch within our Advocate for Me advocacy model, which is our traditional call center, but it's not. We'll talk about what that is in a second. But let's talk about it. Now. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I mean, we are sure. talking about okay. it now, aren't we? Yeah, sure. Because, um, um, because I, I mean, I, I you know this, I, and I know this. Like traditionally, someone would call just a standard call center for an insurance company, and perhaps not get the best experience. Net promoter scores. If anyone is familiar with net promoter scores, we're not, we're not very good for the industry as a whole. And maybe a customer service rep would be able to answer a simple benefit question or order a new ID card or something like that. Um, maybe after a long wait time. So, but 
but there was there was traditionally nothing that was helping help really helping that member navigate through this very complex healthcare system right so how do, how are you guys addressing that Right. So we have a, and based you on, started to answer it and then, yeah. I, and then I had to step back and answer and, and ask the questions. <laughs> well, we have, we have a three tier advocacy model that's based upon navigation system. So every member that goes through our algorithm of phone calls is set on a risk score, a risk score basis. And when I say a risk score, it could be anything from clinically related or even call patterns. So in order to, to build up a risk score, even if I'm a child in a family, Risk scores are based upon um, drugs we fill, um, the medical encounters we have, uh, lab lab results, biometric results if we if they offer them, call patterns. If someone calls over and over and over again, their risk score goes up. And based upon those patterns, when when you put in your member ID number or your social security number, which you have to do in our advocacy model, we then route you based upon Smart Logic. Now, what happens in tier one, if you're a risk score one through four, which is a very low risk score, we, we score to 100. Those folks are always in tier one, which is a conventional call center where we answer claims and we answer questions and help people with benefits. But where our model differs, and I think a lot of folks don't realize we do all this because generally with advocacy models, we're defensively defending ourselves, right? So some an advocacy vendor may come meet one of our customers and position whatever it is they have, but we inherently do this. When you're a risk score four through seven, you're going to what we call a wellness expert. The average call time in tier two is nine minutes or more that we're on the phone. We do make outbound calls, but the point of tier two call is that we're going to educate you on why you keep calling over and over again. This wellness expert is an expert in your plan and all the different components of potentially a consumer-driven health plan. So when we see someone call over and over again, for a consumer plan, we understand that they're having a hard time navigating the healthcare delivery model, and we'll use that opportunity to educate them on premium designation and what it is, um, and maybe things that they didn't know about the plan. Incentives like value-based incentive design, if we have things like wearables or um, there might be a pharmacy incentive of some sort, we would educate them at that point. Where the model differs the most is risk score seven through 100. Every time you call into our traditional call model, you are speaking to a registered nurse every time. It's very important because when you're over risk score seven or above, we are gonna use that opportunity not only to educate you on premium designation, but we're gonna, we're gonna use that opportunity to try and enroll you in what you pay for, which is case, condition, disease management programs. 14% of all of our clinical enrollments across our entire book of business which is what, 27 million members? 14% of them come from an intercepted phone call. Had we not had this advocacy model, what happens to those folks? The traditional model of getting people into clinical is outbound mailers and outbound phone calls. The world has changed. An intercepted outbound call or inbound call for whatever reason you know, they, they, call, they call you for, you're using that education opportunity. And this is where the credibility comes in. Now you made that comment about the insurer earlier. One of the things that I think helps us a lot in this model, in this advocacy model that makes us different is if somebody was to say, putting it bluntly, you know, who the hell are you to tell me, you know, I, sh I should be enrolling in a case management program. By the way, I'm a registered nurse, I'm an oncology nurse, 
and I did that for 16 years. Instantly, they have that credibility based on their credentials. They're yeah. not a traditional customer service representative. Yes, they can answer your claims question. Yes, they can do whatever a normal customer service rep can do, but they take you to that next stage of advocacy. People need help with this model, and it's very important for us in order to meet that AAA and we talked about earlier, is to provide those resources. Yeah. It's key, it's absolute key for this to work. Uh, so, so when you say educate people on premium designation, does that mean that, that, that they'll actually help that person find a premium designated position? Yes. So a good example would be somebody calls in, um, they may want, they may want more information on whatever their primary care claim was, or they may have questions about their upcoming service. We will take that opportunity if they're not premium designated or they're, even if the primary is not premium designated to educate them on what it is and the opportunity. It's done very casually. It's soft steerage. It's not hard steerage. Mm -hmm. We, we have a responsibility to teach, to teach them what, you know, what this is and it's available to them yeah. because knowledge is power, right? So, you know, it, it, you think about it this way, we all communicate differently. So you, our app works the same way, premium designated providers first. Our website works the same way, premium designated. Our phone system works the same way, premium designation works, works that. But you know, what, what's nice though, is when someone gets into one of our, one of our programs, it, it doesn't have to be premium designation, even case management. Let's say you're in a case management program and you have disease management through us. Um, one of the things we're excited about is one one twenty. We have we have text for case management. So you know if you think about the whole notion of a text chain, you and your friends, it goes on forever, right? So what's nice about the whole texting piece is it really personalizes care, and it's it's evergreen. They can just keep going back and forth, yep. you know, and that person's really there with you. Yeah. So of course there's releases. And people and respond to texts. Yeah, they, sure. they don't they don't pick up the phone if it's a number they don't know, but at United that, yeah, you know, the traditional customer service model wasn't working. Uh, we had to do something different and you guys took some action. I, and I love the model. I think that's exactly what's going on. But our, 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 so when somebody's uh, now engaged with a navigator, I won't even call them a customer service rep anymore. Um, what, what about if they get a, a balanced bill on something or, or you know, they've, they've got a bill from a provider they don't understand, you know, why, why did I get this? Like, do they help with those? kinds of questions as well? They are cross-trained in uh, any customer service issue that traditionally would be asked, as well as their scope of services mm -hmm. as a registered nurse. So they, it, depending on what tier you're in, they, yeah. can, they can help you with anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the nice pieces we have with our advocacy model. What about telemedicine? Do they, do they, do they steer to telemedicine? How, how, what are you doing to drive? Sorry, I'm bouncing around here. Oh, it's great. To, to it's drive, great. typically telemedicine benefits are underutilized. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and there are people who are running to an urgent care walk-in or, or even worse, the emergency room when maybe they could have used their telemedicine benefit. How, how are you guys tackling that? Are you, are, are the, so if somebody calls in the customer service, is that an opportunity for them to educate a member on telemedicine? And Absolutely. So when you think about our relationship with Teladoc and the benefits that are even in, embedded in our benefit summary, mm -hmm. When you're in your viewer as a customer advocate, you can see all the benefits available. And especially in a consumer plan, we know that person that goes right to an urgent care center. Mm -hmm. Some of the urgent care centers charge what an emergency room visit would be. We would take that opportunity to say, by the way, you're calling in for whatever you're calling in for, this benefit is available to you. So there is education around that, especially on behavioral health. You know, I think a lot oh, yeah. of folks don't realize that 
a great portion of our brick and mortar United Behavioral Health providers are actually in our telemedicine tool. And um, that's a big deal. So it's not a, a, a chain of a, a Teladoc or an Amwell, it's our behavioral health provider. So it might be the same one you're seeing brick and mortar. And if you average you know, a, a, a behavioral health visit on our consumer plan, that could be two, 250 a visit. And then on your, your consumer plan, it's gonna be a very, very much smaller cost out of pocket, maybe $50 right. flat. So um, it, it's a great tool. It's really a great tool. So that is an opportunity that Advocate for Me definitely would take advantage of. So it's because, so through technology, through the app, through this enhanced call center experience, uh, you're giving people the, the, the tools that they need, the guidance that they need to navigate through this. Because you could say, we just, you could argue that these tiered networks, narrow networks, these new products might in some ways be more complex for people. So they need help. And it sounds like you've acknowledged that they need help and you've got the support for them to, to find their way to the right side of service and to the right doctors at the right time. Right. I mean, even one step further, we have smaller fully insured customers that are very concerned about their employer, their employees' knowledge of the system where we can actually create a pod approach with a team of advocates that they may have, you know, 10, 20, 30 more accounts, but the same pod of advocates and nurse resources are actually working with your plan sponsor so that, you know, there's a familiarity with the group. So depending on that tolerance and, and honestly, the cost is not great at all versus, you know, some of the other advocacy models out there. So depending again on that tolerance, you mean, you mean it's not expensive compared not. to some of the third party uh, navigation on fully insured. It's, yeah. it's, it's pennies, yeah. you know, yeah. and we're talking about, you know, a, a uh, not a not a dedicated model, but a designated model. Yep. Where if we put all of your you know all of your members in Greensboro, yeah, you know that that team is going to be familiar with you and several other accounts. Yep. Right. So um, it creates that look and feel of a of a of a, of, a, of, a, of a, an approach they can trust. Yeah. So one step further, I'd say this isn't even a pod. It, we have the one nurse, one family. You know, special needs units. So if we have somebody who has, you know, someone with autism in the family, we're going to create a case management model where the, the primary case manager will be the same person for the entire family, even though they each have different conditions. It's very important to, to, to have that buy-in with the, the members. And when you remove the barriers of exchanges and you're, you're texting and you're able to call and Skype, everything's different. So the whole model changes. So it's really how they want to communicate. I think that, you know, when you look at that promoter score in the mid 2000s, when we look at our large group, which we defined as 100 plus in Connecticut, we, yeah, yeah. We, we were looking at net promoters um, that were nowhere near 60, 65. We're up in the 60s now, which in the healthcare industry oh, wow. is unknown. Yeah. It is, it's unheard of. So when we look at, and I, I know, I know what you've seen our slide on it. When we look at the highest, I mean, 71, I think is currently like the highest things like Costco or Apple's right there as well uh, for net promotion. We're really proud of that. So, you know, the hundred plus mark has a ton of flexibility and a lot of things you can do. Now, you know, the two to 99 market's a little more regulated and there's a little more, a um, little less flexibility in design, but there's a lot of great stuff going on in the hundred plus space that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about right now. So, you know, these are the things we're doing to try and help people manage costs. Yeah. Awesome. 
I don't know if we have time for this, so we might end up getting uh, getting cut out. Kayla, our wonderful producer, laughing over there. Um, but real quick, anything on prescription? I mean, we're all up at night thinking about prescription drug costs and how they've been skyrocketing year after year after year. What's going on there? Any any new and exciting stuff on the on, on RX management? Yeah, I think I think from our perspective, there's a couple things that really stand out and it, it really is a component of number one getting the providers the tools they need to help manage the plan based on the employee and to be aware of what the costs are so that's number one number two is giving the employer tools to manage their own plan um, and then number three giving the members the education and the tools they need to be able to get themselves to the most effective outcome at the lowest cost so can, can you can you um, just take a, a few seconds and, and explain what you mean by sharing because you've mentioned way back you started to go to rebates mm -hmm. uh, and point of purchase rebate um, uh, participation with the with the patient with the member how, how does that work well a point of sale discount would be something on a consumer plan where we know that there is a large spend on the employee, like a deductible or co-insurance. Yep. And in that deductible phase, we would say, okay, well, your pharmacy deductible spend is so so large. Let's say you go get a drug that might be $800. Mm -hmm. There could be a rebate tied to it. Um, if there is, the, a large portion of the point of sale discount or the rebate will happen at point of sale. We'll actually apply it to the drug. It's not the entire value of, of the what would have been the rebate, but it had in the past, what happened is those weren't passed on to the member. Right, the member would pay yeah. full price and the plan would, would realize the rebate. Yeah. So, you, you know, it, it depends on the drug, but you could see as much as, you know, 80% go back to the employee right. on a given drug. Right there at point of purchase. Right there at point of purchase. And the idea is to help them be able to pay the cost. And this yeah. is across the board on our um, fully insured book of business. But, you know, in addition to that, they need to know what's available to them. So. There's a lot of education, things like biosimilar utilizing in Connecticut. We cover every FDA-approved drug. I believe there's 14 biosimilars FDA-approved right now. We have no skin in the game to where you go fill your drug. You go where you want to go. But biosimilars are available. We know the savings tied to those. Uh, we're not going to stop someone from utilizing them. So that's a big part of the plan. As I talked about with um, the plan sponsor, exclusion at launch strategies, charting a drug. New drugs to market. You got it. Yep. seeing how it performs right. and then the employer makes a decision fully insured we're doing that for them anyway but right. the self-insured model let the employer decide is the drug efficacy do you want to utilize that but more than anything we think we think empowering the providers with this tool we have called pre-check my script is going to help the whole pharmacy spend for an employer and pre-check my script is something that we are renewing all of our provider contracts on which is moving away paper scripts are of the dinosaur and um, we're moving to automated scripts which will be filled by either a laptop and software that we provide or electronic medical record and what happens when they actually go to fill the drug is the provider will see in the viewer if it's a consumer plan for instance that there are five drugs available let's say it's topamax which is a, uh, a migraine drug and it costs we'll say eighty dollars if topamate's available for eight dollars they will get that. They'll say, do you know that your plan, this is your out of pocket, this is what it'll cost. The provider will have that right there to them. Since we've introduced this, and this is staggering, 20% of 
of all, all drugs evaluated in the pre-check MyScript tool have resulted in a drug change. 20%. 20%. Oh, wow. And on because, average. Because doctors are really flying blind. They take out the mm -hmm. pad, they write a script. They're not checking to see what formulary the, the, that patient has. Right. Right. On and, average. And now they've got it right there in the, in the, in the EMR. Right there. Yeah. And 30% um, and of the prior offs are avoided yeah. because they do it right there in the electronic medical record. Right. right. But of that 20% of drug that's rerouted, we are seeing $415 back to the plan per drug change. That's huge. Yeah. And, um, you know, from our perspective with this, with this tool is, you know, you look at, and it's been around for a while. We just haven't really promoted it in the market. It was just as it was getting, getting its legs, you know, you look at up until this year, you know, you, we've, we, we've talked about it. You've, you've quoted with us before and you look at our projections we've had up until this year trends under 10% on pharmacy. Mm -hmm every year in the fully insured pricing space. And that, that's, that's a big accomplishment that we're really proud yeah. of. Yeah, and, but I'll leave, the, and you know this though, I mean, you know, business owners and CFOs and, uh, you know, under 10% sounds great to you and me having mm -hmm. lived with drug trends in the Absolutely. mid to high teens, <laughs> but, you know, um, but there's still work to be done. Absolutely. You know? And uh, so it'd be interesting to see how this whole, this all plays out. The whole, the whole rebate game you know, it'll be interesting to see in my mind if, if that, uh, you know what, we've spent a lot of time. Any other trends kind of emerging in Connecticut you want to talk about or, or nationally even? Yeah, the only thing I would say what is- What did we miss? Anything? I don't think we did because we kind of went, went to it. I just think the big thing that employers, you know, my employers and clients have been asking for, but I based on it. So I think that in order to administer a plan, you know, there has to be some incentives to the employees to participate in the plans. The idea of just putting out a insured rate, and this is just my opinion, but putting out an insured rate and expecting that to be satisfactory mm. isn't enough. So when you take things like, whether it be point of sale discounts, whether it be UHC motion, I mean, there has to be something that the, to help engage the employee. So, you know, I think that we're seeing that. And then as far as shared returns, yeah. you know, I, I, th I, I personally, we, we saw such a shift in self-funding. I'm seeing a lot of clients jump back, yeah. um, which is kind of unique in a way because people are looking for more budgetability. Um, you know, of course, you know, as United, they, they, there's really no trend that they're going to speak of, but just my opinion is just, I've seen no one size fits all, yeah. you know, it's been, but the move back to fully insured has been pretty interesting to me. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that, but there's quite a few groups going the other way, which is really weird. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's to me, it's sort of it is a move backwards. To, to, you know, it's um, kind of, but but we're seeing some very competitive pricing in the fully insured market in Connecticut these days. So you know, sometimes it makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, um, our position would be just you know we're open minded to the risk tolerance of that particular plan sponsor. Right. So you know, there's there really is a lot of options, and it's an exciting time to be a hundred plus employer. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of solutions available. And I think that's what the big thing in the market is we're seeing that there is an expectation that there's a lot more that we need, we need to all be doing out there. All of us. There's so, lot, yeah, there's a lot of change is uh, happening rapidly and we'll continue yeah. to, to do that. It's so. been fun though. Yeah. It's definitely been fun and there's more value to provide as whether it be a consultant or on our oh, side, absolutely. you know, than there's ever been and people are willing to listen. Yeah. And that, that to me has been the big change that, you know, what's been always been done isn't 
the norm anymore. So, right. you know, I think there's an audience, which is awesome. And no doubt. I mean, you know, business owners are, are, are desperate for, for solutions. They're tackling these issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, we always, so you said you're a fan of the show. Huge fan. You, okay. How do we end every episode? What do you do? Do you do a, a bird sign or something? <laughs> <laughs> what, how do you end that? a bird sign. What is, how do you end every show? Uh, rapid fire questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I thought there was something I'm missing out on. Yeah. Well, well I will tell you, just, you know, I, I kind of look, at, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie uh, Rockstar. With oh, Mark yeah, Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. So I kind of yeah. feel like Mark Wahlberg in the audience, I'm kind of like Steel Dragon's my favorite band. Oh. And you guys called me on the stage to be part of the show. Well, that would mean you want to take over my spot. As lead singer in the band, I don't think I'd want to do that, but I mean, I, I'm really excited. <laughs> Coming to be after here, my man. job? No, no, no. <laughs> Good movie, though. Great movie. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, so rapid fire, just a few questions, top of mind, quick answer. Uh, ready? Let's do it. Cats or dogs? Cats. Favorite band? Guns and Roses. If you had one superpower, what would it be? To be invisible. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be? Bagging groceries, absolutely. Because low stress? Low stress, and I could be nice, I could talk to people. Oh yeah, you don't have a gift for that. No. And lastly, our theme this year at One Digital is being bold. So what does that mean to you, being bold? Being bold is a big thing. It's funny because that's actually um, the United Healthcare Sales Culture. That was our last year's mantra, be bold. Mm. To me, being bold is about making bold moves. And in order to succeed in anything you do, you gotta step outside your comfort zone a little bit. You gotta be willing to pay the price, even if it could potentially hurt you. So with no risk, there's no reward, but in order to be successful, bold moves must happen. And, and, and to me, that's taking a risk. Yeah. You gotta take a risk. Yeah, awesome. All right, Anthony, thanks so much. It's it been a, a pleasure. A real pleasure having you here. We could have probably gone on. I don't know. How, how long did we go? An hour? Wow. Oh. We'll, we'll, we'll cut that down to 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, all right. Anyway, it, everyone, if you like this episode, leave a review. And as always, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can be the first to know when the next episode drops. And Thanks again for tuning in. This has been another episode of Friends with Employee Benefits and Angel.